Yes. But we're listening to the beautiful sounds of Switch Mob. At the end of the show, we're going to hear the beautiful sounds of Zach Matari, his new song, Don Sando, which Marconi, guess what? By the way, you're listening to Music Biz 101 more. Don Sando, tomorrow it will have been out for two weeks, and it's uh, right now at 54,000 streams. Nice. So for an unsigned artist, that's fairly respectable. Very good. He's no Ariana Grande, or no. as you like to call her, Adele Grande. Right. With seven rings. But we're all listening to Music Biz 101 and more. I'm hitting the bell that doesn't exist. Can you pass the bell, please? Pass Ashley, the bell. Ashley Veltner. Music Biz 101 and more. There we go. All right. Ashley Veltner here. No, well, I mean, she is here. I'm not her. Ashley Veltner is here. Brought a new hairstyle. She's with us today. Behind the glass. There's no glass. It's a piece of plastic, and that's called a cup. And she is here, and she is working the board. Ashley Veltner. Yes. Ashley Veltner. Of course, we have Dr. Esteban. Connect the Dasmarconi. <laughs> and then, of course, we have to your left, our right. And for our listeners, it's right in the center. We have our student co-host of the night. We'll get her first name right. It is Kaylee. We want to call her Kale. Cheryl. <laughs> Kale Cheryl from Kale. Cincinnati, Ohio. Yeah. The outskirts. Yeah, there we go. Uh, now, we're this is our first show back since spring break. Did you go to Barbados? Did you go to Tahiti? Where did you go for spring break? I went to New Orleans. Oh, you wow. did? I feel like a lot of people went to New Orleans. Like... It's weird. Everyone went there. Cool. It makes no sense. But it was really fun. Did you go away, Ashley, for spring break? As a college student, it's the law, I think, for... Yeah, well, apparently I broke the law because I stayed home and worked. Rockaway, New Jersey. There we go. There we go. Marconi, you're going on assignment tomorrow. Yes, I am. I'll be back Tuesday. So nobody will know that you're on assignment. No. And then we should listen to Music Biz 101 and more every Wednesday at 8 o'clock. Listen to the podcast Music Biz 101 and more iTunes, SoundCloud, the Spotify. Follow us on the Instagram, the Twitter, the Fast Book at MusicBiz101WP. Sign up for that newsletter, MusicBiz101WP.com. The newsletter, we used to get like one person would sign up a month. Mm-hmm. And it was usually somebody's grandmother signed up by accident. Right. But we're getting like four or five people a day signing up suddenly. Wow. We, are, we have become the new Hot. kings and queens of the prom. Yes. You want to give some thanks, Dr. Esteban? You do with it. We want to give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, and Kiss. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. CPA.com when you're ready. And let's give thanks to Christine Vey, a wealth manager and the president of Vey Wealth Management. Christine has helped many professionals at William Patterson, the university, manage their investments and plan for their retirement. If somebody like you, Kale, is looking for some guidance on how to plan for Kale's retirement or... If somebody like you, Kale, have questions on anything from investments and portfolio management to insurance retirement planning, you should give Christine a call at, repeat after me, Kale, 732-455-1111. All right, 
1,510. 1,510. Anybody could always email her. Christine at theywealth.com for advisement. Leave the last oi off for savings. That's all we would ever ask you to do. I think I need to retire. You should retire yeah, now. I might the, call her. At the tender age of 19 or 20? 19. 19. You have no idea yes. what's going to happen to you in the next 41 years. Um, Managing your band, 6th edition. It is out now. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, go and consider it. Consider it. Consider that it exists. Yes. You know, William Patterson has been ranked one of the best schools in the in the world, business schools. It was last year. Has it been this year or we don't know yet? We don't know yet. We don't know yet. And by the way... But supposedly it is in the edition that will be out Friday, Billboard okay. Magazine. So two days the from list. now, the we'll know. Will be out. Okay. Yes. So in two days, we will know if we made it. For 2019. For 2019. Um, for those listening to the podcast, we made it. Okay. And by the way, fifth year of the show has begun. And we should bring up our guest... From Lemonhead to Labelhead, his name is right. John Strom, and he is the president. Did you like that? What a segue. John Strom, president, Rounder Records. John, are you there, baby? Can you hear me? Yes, can yes, you hear we us? Can. I can, yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm on spring break, too. I'm in, I'm in the uh, Redneck Riviera, so I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> used to cell phone, so hopefully it works. So far, we hear you, so that we're Great. feeling good. Did you like that intro we said from Lemonhead to Labelhead? Have you heard that before? No, but, you know, I haven't been a label head for very long, so you know, <laughs> this is kind of my, my coming out party, you know, so so uh, you're setting a very high bar for future interviews. It is very high bar, and maybe one day we will meet at the bar and we can talk about that. Right, because we'll be coming to Nashville first week in May. May. Are you going to Music Biz? Excellent, yes, I will be, uh, I'll be all over Music Biz. Oh, okay, uh, great. Very grateful it's there, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll Pop in a couple times, but we'll we'll make arrangements. How about that? Yeah, yeah. we'll Sounds make sure great. we give you a uh, an '80s style high five, which right. you'll love. Love it. Yeah, yeah, I'm from the '80s, so I can do that. Right. <laughs> Perfect. So, John, you must be well. You really have lived the musician's dream. Let me put it this way: the musician that had success, but maybe moderate success, and the dream to stay in the business, to go from drummer. To go from Berkeley School of Music, then to drummer, and then to law school, and then do music law, and now the head of a label. It's it's uh, it's quite an accomplishment. Well, you guys are you guys are, are, are uh, involved in your academic program there, right? I mean, you're, you teach in the in the, uh, in the in the music uh, business school there. Yes, yes. See, I'm I'm just trying to wear enough hats in the business so someday I can have your job. <laughs> there we go. Right. I've got about three more to do. I've got to be an agent, you know, a little management, maybe, uh, you know, just uh, see if I can get back in the van and, you know, do lights or something. No, it's, <laughs> it's, um, I can't I can't claim that it's been some grand design or, you know, that it didn't feel like total failure at certain points. But, yeah, I'm very happy with where it was mm -hmm. at the moment. So at Berkeley, you were there to be a player? I uh, I grew up in Southern Indiana, and, and um, my parents are university professors, and wow. I was I was certainly the black sheep of the family. I was just uh, you know once I started playing punk rock, that, that's all I wanted to do, and I was really just looking for an excuse to keep playing music, uh, really to dive into my studies. And I think Berkeley was a little more informal back then. <laughs> you know, you know, they let me in, but I was. You know, I, I didn't really put my back into my studies at that point. I really put my back into trying to get a band together. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. I was playing the Lemonheads, and I had another band. There was a classmate of mine, Juliana Hadfield. She and I put a band together called Blake Davies. And right. that was really my ticket out of school because we got busy and we got a record deal. And I was sort of in and out of the Lemonheads at, at a couple different times. But that was really my, my full, full uh, investment was to put this band together. So that, that's really what I was doing. Right. So what made you choose law school? Well, I had about, I think it was, you know, seven or eight years of, of being a, a, you know, really, yeah, I mean, I guess doing what I set out to do, which is making a living playing music and doing mm -hmm. the world and making records and, and that kind of stuff. And, and I ended up relying on the Lemonheads for, for a livelihood in, in the 90s, through my 20s. And, um, it was a great livelihood. It was a great fun band to be in, and, and mm -hmm. I got to see the world. But that band came to an end in 1998, and um, 
my then girlfriend, now wife of almost 20 years, is in Birmingham, Alabama. So when the band broke up, I went back to, to where she was. She had a job in Birmingham, and there just wasn't a whole lot to do <laughs> for somebody uh, trying to make a living in music. So I panicked, and I went to law school. Ah. And uh, I was, you know, it, it had something to do with, with trying to find a way to be professional. I, I did not think I was staying in the music business. I thought I would just find a way to be a lawyer. But when I actually got into law practice um, in Birmingham, Alabama, at a sort of regular uh, regular uh, corporate firm, mm-hmm. that was not a great fit for me. So I had to find a way out. So I started trying to reinvent myself as a music lawyer, which eventually I did. Mm-hmm. And that brought me to Nashville. And so really, I, I had an idea coming into law school that I could use it to do artist development. And, and uh, eventually I kind of shoehorned it to the point where it mm-hmm. sort of worked. Yeah, so I was working at Love and Loeb doing uh, music industry practice, and a lot of that was working with artists. That was my passion, certainly. Mm-hmm. And then that just kind of parlayed into what I'm doing now. I was I was discovered by by the great A and R man Tom Wally. Yeah, he's my boss, and he uh, <laughs> he sort of cold called me for this job, which is kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were in law school, was there any courses outside of intellectual property rights that had anything to do with the music business? When I was in law school, yeah, actually, you know, I, there there were not courses like that, and and uh-huh. what I, what I did to try to remedy that when I was in Alabama, and also so that I could learn the trade of being an entertainment lawyer, was I started teaching law school. I started teaching entertainment law and copyright at uh-huh. Cumberland and Sanford University. That's my alma mater. Then also at University of Alabama. So <clears throat> that's I, that that'll look great on my resume for being a music biz professor. Won't it? Now mm. I taught law school. Um, but it is, it is very specific. And, and the reason I stopped teaching law school is mostly because I was teaching out of this Charles Dieterman case book that I loved and, and it was just completely out of date and they were coming yeah. up with a new version. So yeah, I, yeah. I didn't want to prepare a class again. I was, it was 2011 and I was teaching out of, two, out of a 2007 case book. Just didn't work. That's really boring. Right. But, um, no, I mean, you kind of have to learn the entertainment law side of things on your own. It, 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 really finding your way in that world is more of a mentorship uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, process and, and just diving into work than it is something you learn in law school. Law school really prepares you to take the bar, and then you're, you know, then there's a whole much bigger learning curve. Yeah, yeah. So at Loeb & Loeb, you were representing artists. Well, you know, when I was in Birmingham, I got I think I got very lucky. I think it was a combination of luck and, and paying attention because my first real music client was was Bon Iver, if you're familiar with uh, with that act out mm-hmm. of uh, Wisconsin. This guy named Justin Vernon, who's, who's built a remarkable career. Um, but at, at that point in 2007, when I started working with him, he was, he was a, a guy with a really beautiful demo tape. And uh, so I got involved very early. And I, what I, one thing that I can definitely attest to is that if you want to get a, the wheels on any kind of music industry profession, it, it helps to have a superstar client. So, yeah. <laughs> that that happened very early on for me, and you know I had whatever reputation I had from having been a full time musician, and then I had this this client that was you know an enormous buzz at that point, and that really helped me to bring in other artists' clients. So by the time I moved to Nashville in 2011, I was also working with the Civil War sort of big story. They sort of brought me more into the Nashville world, and uh, a band called Dawes from California, which which you know mm-hmm. worked with right from the beginning and. Alabama Shakes is my client. I just yeah. recently started working with them. So I, I had, I sort of had the wheels on, and it was more in, in, the, in the rock and roll world. It was very reflective of my taste, but I really wanted to break into country. Mm-hmm. So that's why I moved to Nashville. I wanted, I wanted to be an artist lawyer, and I knew that I had to work with bigger artists to be able to be a hundred percent right artist lawyer and actually make a decent living. So that was my idea: was that I would move to Nashville and now at that time get into the country business. Yeah, at t- at that time in the beginning, were they offering, were the labels offering three sixty deals? Oh sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I started. I I really came into the music business on the on the business side when the walls were coming down in the industry, and mm-hmm. there was a lot of uncertainty when, when during those few first few years I was working, and it was a little bittersweet because I was, <laughs> I was thinking like, wow, I'm finally finding my way as somebody in the music business just when the industry is completely in freefall. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of a good thing because that really affected my worldview. And also, I came into it without the idea that I could make a lot of money because people just 
you know, if they were making a lot of money off of artists in 2008 and 2009, then they were definitely doing something shady, you know, yeah, because yeah. it was just a tough time for the industry generally. So mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't only doing music work at that point. I was also doing corporate work. I was working at, you know, private equity deals and big commercial mm -hmm. and real estate deals. I was wearing a suit to work. You know, I was not yet full-time music. And that was kind of a comfortable place to be because there wasn't a whole lot of money to, to be made. So seeing the industry turn around has been really interesting. But, yeah, I mean, I, I was aware of that transition into deals that were a broader spectrum of rights, and I had I had, had some issues with them that were not very nuanced at the time. And uh, I think I have much more nuanced views on them now. But at the time, I was very, I think I was very ideological because I was coming out of mm. uh, being an artist and, and having a lot of issues with, with record labels and with the business generally about how the business uh, um, affects artists' creativity mm -hmm. and, and about artists' ability to make a living. And I came into it with a lot of ideas about um, how things should be. And the one thing that's really held, held from that is that I have certain values that I really hold you know, very central to what I do mm -hmm. that involves the creative process and respect for artists. Mm -hmm. Now, what what do you think was the, I guess, the thing you said to Tom Whaley to make him say you were the guy? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think that he and his son, Ryan, I mean, Tom Wally, uh, just for a quick background, is just one of the legends of, of, of A&R. He was right. one of the founders of Interscope. He was already a successful a &R guy at that point. You know, discovered Tupac. You know, he, he's he's just, you know, a million careers that are amazing. He was, the, he was the chairman of Warner Brothers for over a decade. Yeah. He's, you know, just one of these guys who's really uh, been operating at a very high level. And I think, from my view, has been doing it in a way that's been really pro-artist. You know, he championed the Beastie Boys and nobody else would after their first album because he believed it all speak. You know, he's got a lot of, uh, you know, sort of things that he, you know, things he pursued at the time that might have seemed crazy that, that you know, ended up uh, being exactly right. So I really admire him. And, you know, I've gotten to know him over the years. He, he's tried to sign a number of my clients. I don't think we ever actually successfully closed the deal, but... You know, he, he and Ryan became aware that I was a good source for what they were doing. I think a lot of very seasoned A&R people uh, realize that individuals who are working in the industry can be good sources for them. So I think they identified me as a good source for talent. Mm -hmm. And and then when Tom had the opportunity to hire someone for Rounder, he approached me because he thought that my practice was really uh, – reflective of what he wanted to, to build around her, you know, and he, and he knew a lot about, about me and, and my own ideas and values because we'd spent a lot of time together. So mm -hmm. it wasn't like looking me up at the phone book. It was like, you know, he'd, he'd had his eye on me because he thought that I was doing interesting and, 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 um, you know, high quality A&R my job, which, mm -hmm. which, you know, was not what I said I had to do, but you know, it's very flattering to have somebody like him see it that way. Yeah, now being a musician, do you work closely with A and R? Oh, I, I pretty much do A and R for Rounder. I, I, huh. I have a couple of people on my team who I who who I work closely with, you know, but I've been there for less than a year and a half. I mean I'm very new, but but all the artist signings have been my signings so far. It with with uh, a couple of exceptions. Um one of the founders of Rounder, there's three individuals who founded the label who are in their 70s. They sold the label in 2014 to Concord, but they hold on to a, a services arrangement where especially one individual among them, Ken Irwin, is, is an expert in bluegrass. So he's really continuing to be our you know, ears and insight into the bluegrass world, which is great. And then we have a guy named Scott Billington who's been with Rounder since the 70s who's really good blues and you know, New Orleans music expert who lives in New Orleans, speaking of New Orleans. And he signed <laughs> a, a blues artist named Samantha Fish. I'm really excited about And so there have been a few things that have come through those sources, but the other signings have been mine. And that's really my passion is, is uh, talent, talent discovery and development, you know, mm -hmm. artist development. That's, that's why I love what I do is the opportunity to do that. So, you know, I tend to focus on A and R, and you know, and, and 
longer term strategy, and then I have somebody I work with very closely who's who's really in charge of marketing mm-hmm. and and leads the team in marketing. I'm involved in marketing, but Michelle Akulada, whom I work with, when I went into this job, I had I, I had to know that I had somebody of, of Michelle's caliber to work with me because I don't have a big background in marketing. That's mm-hmm. the fun part. What what is your definition of artist development? Because a lot of people throw that word around, and a lot of people like. Managers say that's what I do, and agents say that's what I do, and labels say that's what I do. So, uh, from your perspective, what is it that that you do on your end that con- that is considered artist development? Hey, I don't think any of them are lying. I think that mm-hmm. they all do. I think we all do. And mm-hmm. this is something that I really formed a lot of ideas about as an attorney, um, because my role was often to figure out what was the best course for an artist to, to build a career. So, you know, I'd have a young artist show up in my office and, you know, if they, they might be at the point where they have label opportunities. They might be at the point where they, they have a growing fan base and, and people actually care. So there are a lot of choices to make there that are going to be very impactful on how that artist develops. Like it was very common for me to have young artist clients that I was advising who would have the option to either sign with a major label or with some kind of case hacker and or do it themselves. And those are all compelling paths, you know, each of which has, has, uh, uh, you know, challenges and, and has advantages. So I found it very frustrating for the last few years as a lawyer to have to go through all those different options, you know, where I could personally see which the right one was, but I couldn't say, Oh, this is what you have to do. They kind of have to arrive there on their own. You know, so I'd have to say, well, here's here are the things that can go wrong. Here are the things that could go right, and hope they make the right choice. But I believe so completely in what Concord has put together in terms of services. You know, the model that Concord has for developing an artist following, I think, is is second to none. You know, especially because it doesn't carry the same baggage as major labels in terms of you know wondering whether or not we're in the sort of short-term pop business because, you know, we're, we're other than Kids Bop, you know, we're really not. You know, it's mm-hmm. about developing artists' careers that are going to build great catalog in the future. You know, it's not about what can we get to a billion streams next week, at least not at this moment, you know. And I think it'll continue to be about building artists' careers. So for me, artist development is about once you have music that's great, that you're sure will connect with an audience, then what are the resources you need to make those connections? You know, how do you put together a plan to do that? That's really where the development comes in. And also just the creative side of A&R where you're helping an artist make their best record. You know, I, one, one of the values that I hold very close is that I don't get in the way of the creative process, but I was frustrated as a lawyer, as a creative person, because I didn't have uh, any kind of seat at the creative table, and I really wanted mm-hmm. to have the sorts of, you know, the the standing to be able to say, here's how I think we can make this better. And and the insight to know when that isn't just getting in the way of what the artist is trying to do. So, you know, that's a pretty vague answer, but, you know, you can kind of put it in the, you know, categories of creative A&R, helping artists to do great work, and then, you know, the marketing side where you're trying to connect it with an audience, all of which is towards the goal of building an artist's career. Mm. It was a great answer, actually. Yeah. I'm very happy with your answer. <laughs> oh, good. Well, you know, <laughs> oh, if I'm back and have to submit it for a grade, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll uh, be optimistic. Yeah, we would have said just um, cut out all the other stuff and just give us your last sentence, and then there we go. You know, we have we have students when we're, you know, grading, and we have some students who can give, uh, like, we uh, give a short answer, some kids a short answer is five pages and for others it's one sentence and right. each can be totally right but it's funny how uh people can be in terms of that this is right. a good interview by the way because you're talking right yeah you know, we're not milking you yes yes you're, you're giving us what we want so thank you in advance well let, let me make one other comment here while i'm thinking about it because i think this is important so i've had a few experiences experiences recently where i said in on classes for music business students. And what I have to say to them, I think they find very surprising because of the kind of chatter that's going on in the, in the you know, people who are learning the business, you know, because I remember, you know, first learning the business and having, having great confidence in my own 
you know, kind of perception of the business. And then later realizing that there was a lot I didn't know. But, you know, when I was, you know, in, in deals back in the 90s, you know, I really felt like I knew a lot. And, you know, I did in a sense. I probably did more than most artists. But I think the reason why what I have to say is confusing to artists is because, or, or to, to students, is that students want to look at the business in the kind of a black and white, like, you know, labels are evil, you know, mm-hmm. labels are, a, are a, you know, something that reflects the past. You know, now artists can do all this on their own, and, and you know, anybody who purports to be a label is, is you know, sort of on the take and is kind of, mm-hmm. you know, kind of providing some kind of unnecessary middleman role. And that, I'm fine with that because that's completely contrary to my worldview. Because what I see is that once artists get to the point where they really could have a shot at having a big international career, they need a lot of help. And how they get that help is going to have a huge impact on you know their ownership structure, their creative control, like every other aspect of, of their business. And you know. When I'm going to sophisticated managers now and trying to make deals and they understand what Concord is, they understand, you know, what they're plugging into, um, it's a pretty easy conversation to have because these sophisticated acts are not thinking about the world in, in sort of binary terms of like, oh, we can do this all ourselves now. We don't need labels. They know they need these resources. They know it's getting more and more difficult to get music out there because the uh, the streaming world is so diverse and there's so many other things you have to think about. They really just want to delegate that work. And that's great, you know, mm-hmm. because I think that there's a real future for labels because you need so many relationships and so much know-how to be able to really take a shot at marketing music. I mean, it's a given the music has to be great, but there's just so much that goes into it that it's extremely hard even for very sophisticated managers to do it themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A while back in our interview, you, you in our interview you used the term tastemaker indie. Is right. that is that what you would consider rounder in in your genre? I, I would like to think that, that that's where we're headed. I mean, rounder is an interesting uh, um, it's an interesting challenge because it really is a cultural institution. You know, Rounder's been around for fifty years mm. next year, and rounders produce superstar careers. Rounders where Alison Krauss has had almost her entire career. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've sold tens of millions of records. It's something that's recognized by a lot of people as, as you know, really a lot of things. It's mostly recognized in the bluegrass community where it's regarded as, you know, being one of the great labels, you know, maybe the greatest label. So that's the context, you know, but we want to be competitive now. So, I'm very proud of that heritage, and I think about it all the time, and I think about how we can square what we're doing now with that. But I want Rounder to be perceived within the artist community as being a cool label that's going to actually get it done. You know, so when I'm when I'm a, a, when I was an attorney, there were certain labels that I came to regard as being really top-notch labels, where if you had an opportunity there, that was great news. Mm-hmm. Like all the secretly Canadian labels, I consider to be in that on that level all the beggars banquet labels, you know. Those are the ones I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about Tastemaker Indies. And I think that the model that we have is not that different from them because it's about shared resources. So there are, you know, really five labels within our system we are all sharing the same resources, which gives us incredible power because we can have the 12-person radio team working our songs because they're serving several different labels. Mm-hmm. Now, it, was it a... It must have been a conscious, uh, a conscious decision by Concord to get bigger in the last three or four years. Um, well, it, when they hired Tom, you know, because Tom brings a certain point of view to this, and, and hiring Tom was about finding some cohesion among all the labels and, and having a, you know, kind of a shared vision that, mm-hmm. that you know, gives us a cachet in the industry where we really want to be, you know, completely preeminent in this in this category of you know serving artistically challenging and 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 you know groundbreaking artists who also can have big commercial careers you know that's really what we're looking Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. and you know tom has me in charge with rounder because he's you know convinced that that my insight into you know what's going on more in the kind of roots 
Americana side of things is 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 going to you know lead to having that kind of label. So now the pressure's on. Now I'm going to actually execute on that, you know. But for me, I'm just I'm a lifelong music fan, and, and I, I'm obsessive about it. And you know, I'm always listening. I'm always looking for great thoughts and great voices, and I know it when I hear it. And I'm very confident that you know the artists that we're signing are going to be career artists, you know, and that gives me great confidence in what we're doing. You know, unless the infrastructure of the music industry utterly collapses, I feel like we're going to get there, you know, based based on what we've been able to accomplish in, uh, in A&R over the last year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We yeah. had L.A. Reid here a couple of years. At the time, he was the president of Epic Records. Right. and And he's on, so he's on campus and he's talking and... Um, there's a uh, about a two-hour thing, and near the end, uh, people in the audience got to ask him questions. And so this one girl comes up and starts asking him and says, you do A&R? And he says, yes. And he, she says, so so you're always looking for new artists? And he says, yeah, always doing that. And she said, uh, uh, can I sing for you now? <laughs> and, and, and the room, everybody knew it was coming. And you could just, and it was, the room was completely silent after she said that because we knew how wrong it was. And he just goes, no, darling, no. And you could just see her shrink. And right. I think she started crying and it was, oh, no. so I, I bring that up because you're, you're, you're talking about you're a president, you do A&R. Do you have people from odd places come up to you and just start humming, you know, and just, you know, hey, I'm like John Strome, you know, or... <laughs> I did, I did a mentor session in South Bay last week, and, and the first woman that I saw was actually very good. She just came up. She said, I want you to hear something, and she just stuck her headphones on my head started playing the music. Yeah. So uh, I guess it happens. You know, I, I have it, – it's it's an interesting time for A&R because, you know, there's so, so much of the industry is focused on data at this point. It's focused on trying to – read the tea leaves about how people are reacting to music now that we have access to all this data. And we're, we're fools if we don't, you know, have an eye on that, you know, but I also really believe that, you know, that, that we're not going to win at that game. You know, it's like if we jump in and start trying to bid on, you know, the latest SoundCloud rapper to, you know, get to a hundred million streams on Spotify, we're not going to win, you know, we're going to get outdone every time. The only way that we win is by keeping our ears open and finding those great singers and songwriters, people making interesting records that are not yet getting to the point where they're hitting that wave where, you know, everybody's jumping on it. And I have been in situations where I've had to compete with major labels and, you know, I had to compete with everybody. And that's something I'm willing to do. But it's really nice when we find something that's really 100% there and, you know, there, there isn't a lot of label activity around it. And, and that's something that, you know, we have to work a little harder to do that. You know, there's a lot more going on hearing music and, you know, talking to people that you trust about what they're into and, and you know, having our trusted sources. You know, that it's, it's not easy at all. But, you know, I know it when I hear it. I know a great song. I know a great voice. And I've gotten more confident in that over the years because I've been right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, well, speaking of that and speaking of data, we were fortunate enough that we got to, um, a couple of weeks ago, go to the city, New York, and uh, sit down with Joe Riccatelli, who's the co-president of RCA Records. And, yeah. with, and with Joe, I don't know if you've ever met him, very nice guy. And um, he's an alum here of the University of William Patterson, based in Wayne, New Jersey. Come on down. And um, we were talking about release uh, strategies in the era of streaming and we call we were talking about the drip method basically do we release a full album or do we just just do a single every three weeks you know every month just put out a single a single and we were comparing uh khalil for example sorry khalid who he has to uh a foo fighters and the foo fighters they're they're more of an album band they're uh, audience is they purchase albums they want to hear the whole album they're not really into the singles uh, you know, the, the every month the song versus the pop audience. Uh, for you, where do you stand there? Is it genre-based? Is it artist-by-artist? Artist? Uh, explain kind of what you're thinking. Well, look, I mean, this, this is something that we have to constantly stay on top of and constantly update. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, the, the, the most recent hire in my team is 23 years old, and that's that's not, you know, that's not an accident. You know, we need young people who are, you know, real natives when it comes to, to this, this kind of insight. Mm-hmm. But um, 
we are deeply, deeply committed to the Alpha's art form, and that's mostly because the artists we sign are as well. They mm-hmm. think about their, their, their statements and their expression as, as the album format. And also, we're very bullish about the, the about vinyl and about the opportunities with vinyl. And we do very nice, very high quality packages. And you know, we have a great infrastructure for direct to consumer sales. And so, yeah, we we tend to set up our, our our campaigns at the moment as albums. Now, that doesn't mean that you know we're just sort of surprised releasing albums all the time. The setup involves releasing singles. So that, you know, that's something we're constantly fine-tuning is how do we, how do we, you know, get the most attention around these projects, you know, in the in the setup phase. But the end of it is always releasing an album, and I think that's going to continue for a while. And I hope it continues for a long time. I hope it continues forever. You know, we're not in this world anymore where the album is 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 the product of technical limitations, or where you know you have to be stuck with that format. You can release music any way you want. I just want artists to be inspired and think about doing, thinking about doing their best work and, you know, what is their grand artistic statement? You know, I want them to be ambitious. And I think thinking in terms of, of albums really helps them to be as ambitious as they can be. I'm just curious, do you have any data on what the average age of the round of record buyer is? Well, no, and it's something that's in flux. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. you know, I, I could I could get get somebody on my team to you know put me out of PDF or whatever, but uh, you know the thing is uh, the rounder audience and, and back to the question of you know do you want to be a tastemaker indie? I mean, rounder really is a tastemaker indie when it comes to you know folk bluegrass old time these genres where the audience is, is significantly older and some of the music that we're putting out now like Weston Kelly's a good example I'm with her is a good example where we are reaching out. And that's very much by design. That's very deliberate. And I don't think we'll really feel successful until we really are putting out music that at least is reaching into, you know, to be interesting to teenagers, you know. And and I have teenage kids, and I can see how much it takes to get them interested. You know, they're they're very much in their bubble. But um, I, that's part of the challenge is, you know, we're, we're, we're setting the tone for the label going forward by the music we're putting out, which is going to of a very high quality. And uh, I don't want to alienate the people who think about Rounder or this label that's called well, the Binder Rounder, which I also run Sugar Hill, which is another folk and bluegrass label. I don't want those people to think that it's not what it's always been, which is you know preeminent in those genres. But I also want it to have a broader appeal to younger people. And it's really, really hard to brand a label right now because as more and more people are in streaming, streaming services don't really connect label brands with artists. You know, mm-hmm. it's really hard to know what label it is. You know, it's not really something that's a high priority for them. So why would they? You know, uh, we have to think about creative ways to connect our music with our label. And and that's something we do all the time. That's something we're doing through social media. It's something we're doing through events, like we had a day party at South by last week, you know. It's something we do by, by you know, just making connections with people who are interested in music, you know. And that's, that's how you can become a source to music fans as they make connections between the music they love and the source of that. So that's, I think that's much harder than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Mm. Mm. Our student co-host of the year, uh, Kaylee Sherrill, who's from Ohio, <coughs> would like to yeah. read a tweet question for you. All right. Great. So Jake wants to know, what is the hardest or most annoying part of being the president of the company? Yeah. Most annoying. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the hardest thing for me because it's new is is leading a team, right? Because I have a team. If there's ten people who work for Rounder, and uh, you know, there's been a little bit of flux, a little bit of changeover. I brought one person with me, but it's been basically the same people. Mm-hmm. And I've always worked in ways where you know I've I've been sort of a band leader, but that's different because. You know, you're not doing that with, with uh, you know, HR policies and things like that. You know, so it's like, how do you, you know, provide that kind of leadership? Well, that's a learning curve for me. And, and you know, I want people who work at the label to be completely driven by passion like I am. And that's a lot to expect, you know, because I am so passionate about what I do. And, you know, so to 
driven by that passion that, you know, it's it's mystifying to me that somebody doesn't <laughs> want to, you know, like have a conversation at, at you know, 9 o'clock at night about, about some band I'm excited about. So, um, you know, I, I, I've been really, really blessed with great people to work with, but it's like figuring out how to be, you know, a good boss is something that's new to me because I'm 51 years old and it's the first time I've done it. But I think it's going well. You can talk to my employees and see how they feel about it. I don't know if it's annoying. I mean, they. I guess, I guess the most annoying part of it is that, you know, I I have to. You know, if, if I'm not being a complete uh, jerk, then you know I should respond in person to all the music that's submitted to me, and I really try to do that. And some of it's just not even close, you know. And how do you do that in a way that's not going to ruin somebody's, you know, week and and. Uh, you know, how do you write something encouraging when, when the answer is a hard no? You know? <laughs> right. Mm. Mm. So that's mm-hmm. Another question. All right. So this one's from me. So what is or was it like juggling the role of a band member while working as a lawyer and head of a label? What would you recommend to musicians who want to perform but also be an active member in the music business? Well, I, I've really not done those things simultaneously. Right. I left. I left playing mule, and then I became a lawyer, and I wasn't running the label until I was done being a lawyer, you know. So mm-hmm. it's really been, you know, those have been massive shifts in my life, in my professional life. But the interesting thing to me is that it all kind of feels like it's all been pointed in the same direction. Like what I was doing as a kid on my hardcore scene when I was a teenager is kind of the same thing I'm doing now, you know. <laughs> it's like mm. I want to turn people on to music. I want people to you know, find community in music, you know, that's, that's what interests me. That's what inspires me. And, you know, that's, of course, that's what I turn my law practice into, you know, just cause that's a sheer force of my own personality. And, and I do feel like I am one of these people that really didn't catch a break until I was 50. I feel like, you know, I wasn't doing exactly what I should be until I was running rounder, which is amazing. So, you know, but, it wasn't like I was, I, I'm not making the argument that I was a failure or I wasn't doing the right thing. I think it was all necessary. Right. And the amazing thing about the job I have now is that if I would have, before I went back to school, if I would have been offered this job, I would have taken it. I would have been, you know, felt entitled to it. And I would have been absolutely terrible at it. I would have failed <laughs> spectacularly. Right. So, so do you... 30, s- you know, coming off of being a musician and I was the kind of musician that people used to come to me for advice. You know, I, I tried to really sophisticated in my knowledge of the music business and but it really took the you know incredibly broad spectrum of, of observations that I was able to make as, as an attorney where I saw every single possible angle of the business to have any idea how to run a label right you know and I had some people questioning me coming in you know who were part of the concrete organization to say like why is this guy who's never worked at a label running a label now you yeah. know and my boss and the CEO were confident about it because they'd sat down and talked to me, but there was a big learning curve, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. But I think that in some ways, if you're not from a certain part of the business where there's been enormous disruption in that business, it might be an advantage not to have that baggage, you know, not to have, have had a real visceral, you know, habit of doing things a certain way and then having to change, you know? Here's hoping. I mean, that's just an idea, but uh, I'm... I'm really, you know, grateful to have this opportunity. It's incredible. Mm. Right. Uh, I, I just had a question to go off that. So uh, I'm sure you practiced and continued to play, you know, your instruments while you were dealing with more of the business side since you weren't uh, exactly doing the band simultaneously, but I'm sure you kept up with everything else. And I yep. just kind of wanted to know bo- more about that because I know it's a lot of work to try and keep in touch with your craft because it's still, you know, important, even though you're focusing on the business side. Well, I try to play play music, you know, every week, if not every day. And, mm-hmm. and I'm on vacation right now, which means I'm playing guitar a couple hours a day. My family gets annoyed with me because <laughs> as soon as I'm not, <laughs> supposed to be somewhere I pick up a guitar. My my attitude about this, for me, it was really a relief to not have to be a professional musician anymore. And mm-hmm. I got to experience so many amazing things as a professional musician. Um, but it put a lot of stress on the music I was making. And once I was not in the band that was paying the bills, you know, and the pressure was on me to try to make a living with my own music, I've never really 
believed that I had the kind of transcendent talent where I could be, you know, a huge name artist. Mm-hmm. That's not me being humble. I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably my greatest talent is recognizing talent. I know that my talent is limited. You know, I can be really good in somebody's band, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to change the culture, you know, with my work. So I'm much better doing what I do professionally. I have a lot more to offer. But that doesn't mean that I have to give up playing music for joy. And and that means that, that when I do play music now, which I do with ensembles, I do informally, I do by myself, I do with my kids, it's all about doing something joyous. You know, that's it. If it's not fun, I'm not going to do it. And that's a great place to get to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I have no designs on having a profile in music ever again. I do not care at all. I'm completely committed to trying to build other artists' careers. And what I do musically is, is for fun. And I, I actually today spent an hour, you know, practicing scales because I want to be able to, you know, to improvise better, you know. And, mm-hmm. and uh, that's still, still something I do, you know. And there's absolutely no compelling reason nobody cares but me. Have you ever had that conversation? Because your son, uh, Steve Martin, is on your label, the comedian <laughs> yep. Steve Martin, and yep. you know he was a comedian first, actor, writer, and then even though for many, many, many years he's played banjo, he's uh, you know sort of found this second career, uh, and he's you know signed to you guys and he tours. Who's he, who's he tour with? What's the band? Steve Canyon Rangers. Yeah, Steve- Although I went to see him recently, he, he had I'm with Barry with him, which is amazing, but. He has a segment where he likes to pick, and he does a kind of a bluegrass segment, which has a comedy element. But you know, he's he he likes to work music and do his shows, which is great. Have you guys had that conversation? That the difference between um, you know doing what you've always done and then being a musician. I have never had a real sit down one on one conversation with Steve Martin. I hope to at some point. Um, you know, I, I've I've been to one of his shows, and I had a very he, he's very generous, and and uh, you know, we had a nice. You know, made small talk backstage, but I've not had the mm-hmm. opportunity to kind of drill into what is it to make Steve tick. But you know, I think he he rediscovered bluegrass and rediscovered banjo pretty late into his career. So mm-hmm. you know, it's something that's become a passion for him. You know, I, anybody who's familiar with his work in the '70s knows that he strip on the banjo and do a little bit. But he'd stopped doing that for a long time, and he started doing it again because I think it was mostly from listening to the serious XM station. Uh, Bluegrass Junction, you know, we start hearing a lot of stuff that, I don't know that for sure, but I, I do know that it's something that he kind of came back to. And, you know, I, I think that um, when I was a kid coming up in music, music was so exciting for me. It was so exciting to kind of unlock the secrets and, you know, figure out how to, how to make music and figure out how to put a band together. And that was so, such an obsession for me for so long that I was kind of blinded to what kind of work I was actually doing because I was always the person who was figuring out how to get it to the next level. You know, how do you get your gear to the show? How do you get on the radio? How do you make a record? That was always me. And I thought it was because I wanted to have a career as a musician, but then at some point it became very clear that that process of, you know, trying to problem solve and figure it out was what I enjoyed doing. And it's maybe even more gratifying for me if it's somebody else's career as opposed to mine because that takes all the anxiety out of it, you know, and all the, you know, questions of am I, am I, do I deserve this, you know, because I believe so completely that these artists deserve everything that they're getting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing we haven't talked about is the structure of Rounder. Can you kind of talk what? about what, what the departments are, how many people work for Rounder, that kind of stuff? Yeah, this is something that I had to learn about just a few years ago. I was working with an artist who signed to one of our sister labels, uh, Fantasy Records, Marcus Kingban. Are you familiar with him? Mm-hmm. Um, he's a, a amazing. He's a virtuoso, but he's you know he's a, he's a kid who has this incredible soulful voice, you know. And I really recognized that Marcus is somebody who could be a household man. You know, he could be somebody to pack arenas. So we had to be very careful about how to build it. You know, he really needed the right label card. And there's a guy named Joe McEwen who's A and R for 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 Concord Company for the for the labels. And he took a really hard run at, at Marcus. And I knew Joe because, you know, he was A and R from Tupelo and for Wilco and, and uh, built a still. You know, he was a, a guy whose career I'd really followed, but I was like, I don't know, he isn't Concord isn't that a jazz label. You know, I really didn't know that much about it. And so he uh helped me to get educated about what 
the, the Concord label you know, group actually is. So I've known Rounders since I was a kid because I, I grew up in southern Indiana. I grew up around blue, bluegrass. You know, I grew up going to bluegrass festivals. I lived in Boston in the 80s. I tried to get a job there at one point. You know, they used to have a huge warehouse mm. where they distributed a lot of labels. And, you know, Rounder has, has shape-shifted over the years. You know, it's, it's, it's no longer, you know, a, a, a standalone entity that distributes other labels. It's now completely part, wholly owned by Concord, which is, you know, kind of like a quasi-major, you know, that, that doesn't have some of the baggage that majors have, like about you know, the, the fact that we're able to, to have our projects have kind of artistic freedom is, is, I think, unique. But the way that it's structured is there are five of these frontline labels that are also catalogs. You know, I don't have anything to do with Rounder's catalog. I mean, other than having conversations with the catalog guys about what to reissue. But what I do is frontline, meaning it's going forward. So they have these iconic labels that have been around for a while, like, Fantasy's been around since the 40s, Rounders been around since 1970, you know, and now we're running them as contemporary labels. So my own label in, in Nashville, we have, you know, the, the people that we work close, really closely with, Gary Pachos is the head of A&R, he's the VP of A&R, he's, he's a legendary producer engineer, so he's very much in the technical side of record making, which is great. And then Michelle Akalata, who I mentioned, is the head of marketing, so she leads the marketing team, which includes three project managers. And we have a publicist in New York. We have another publicist in Nashville who's really a bluegrass expert. And then we have a coordinator. And then we also have people who are with the shared service team who, who work for all the labels who sort of work not exactly primarily with us, but, you know, a great deal. And then the shared service teams, it's like a radio team and a, and a digital team and an international team. Our, our distribution is through Universal around the world. Uh, sync, um, all the all the you know the packaging and, and um, manufacturing and direct to consumer. So it's really like everything you need to have a successful campaign is, is in house. And we sometimes hire out the publicists, but not always. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, listen to this. You know what that means? <laughs> no. Nope. It, it, it means we're done. Okay. That's it? That's it. That's you, it? You've passed the test, John. You great. get to stay president. <laughs> I've just been droning on endlessly. I and get an A, too. Boring. Yeah, yeah. No, actually, Tom Wally's the one who told us to do this. And uh, if you answered all the questions, he's sitting right next to me. And he said, if you answer all the questions, if you answer the questions right, and you get to stay, so um, you get a new ten-year, two hundred fifty million dollar deal. I heard Tom on a podcast the other day, and it was on the uh, Future of What, which is uh, the woman who runs Killer Rockstars. And uh, I texted him that I heard it, and he got really confused. He called me like, "What are you talking about?" He's like you're on a podcast. He's like, "Oh, I taped that like three years ago." Well, that's funny. Well, in three <laughs> in three years, when he hears this, he can. Um... Right, you know, right back to you. So, like, if, what were you talking about? What was that? <laughs> no, by the way, so if he well, is good. listening well, in three years, hey Tom. All right, so yeah. we should we should thank you at this time. Can we thank? Do you mind if we thank you right now? That'd be fine. Thank you, John. Yes, this is great. Yeah. Thank there you very much. Well, I look forward to, to meeting you face to face at Music Biz here in a, in a few weeks. Yeah, we have your email, and, right? Yeah, we you'll, will reach out. Yes, we'll just do. reach out with and, your email. And uh, this has been my pleasure. And. Uh, Thank you for the good questions. I hope I wasn't too boring. No, you, this yes. is very good. We want to thank Nick. Nick, tell me if I'm saying his, his last name right. Boney or Bonnie? Boney? Yes. Yeah, Boney. Nick Boney is the one from Concord who set this up. So we want to thank Nick and, and tell him we said thank you and give him a big bear hug. Nick's a prince. Absolutely. Yeah. He loves prince. So thank you again, John. Appreciate yes. it. Have a great night and go back to the kids. All right. Thank On you. vacation. Yes. Thanks again. Bye. Well, yeah. I enjoyed okay. it. Yes, it was very good. Yes. Um, do we have 30 seconds, Ashley? We have 30 seconds. My question for Kale is now you've had uh, <laughs> listened and sat in for conversations with two label presidents. We had, like we mentioned, Joe Riccatelli a week and a half ago. And, and Ashley, you were in on that too. And now we just had John Strom. Um, for both of you, um, what do you think of these label president people? Are they. From last week? We had Joe Riccatelli. You were there. 
At Sony. Wait, oh, oh you, Sony. At I Sony. Thought you, for a second, I thought you were talking about the radio show. No, okay, no, no. I was you, like, you, I was you, not there. Yeah, you actually saw okay, Joe Rickett. The, yes. the, pres- the yes. co-president yes. or whatever. Okay, yeah. yeah. Him, okay, I remember right. him. He, he made a good impression on you, obviously. I have no idea who he is. But, uh, and then this guy. <laughs> I'm so bad at remembering names. I'm just going to throw that that's out That's okay, there. Joan. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, what do you think? Um, I mean, personally, I feel like they were both great. Like the, um, sorry, what was the first guy's name at Sony? Joe. <laughs> Joe. And this oh, is John. John. I know John. Okay, yeah. so Joe, he was really nice. Um, I really liked how he just had a really nice speaking voice, I guess. But I feel like he answered <laughs> questions really well. But uh, I really liked um, talking with John because I feel like I can relate to him as a musician. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I was getting at because, you know, I think when you have that really big passion about music it's kind of hard to decide what you want to do and know where to go because you're kind of torn between both parts of it so Mm -hmm. it's nice hearing from someone else and especially someone you know he's part of the Lemonheads and I really like that band so that was also really cool so I mean it was easier to really you know really I really enjoyed it Ashley comparing the two and what do you Um, think I thought they both were interesting Mm -hmm. um I enjoyed at when we were at Sony how he would talk about the different ways they distribute the records because I when he mentioned the Foo Fighters I'm like yeah you know they definitely are more of an album band than a s- single band and I completely mm-hmm. like um, understood and I liked today how um, John talked about the structure of his label it's like you never you hear like about each section but he kind of explained it a little bit and it was nice to yeah. hear how he runs his mm-hmm. as right. opposed to. Yeah. All the information that you can find online. And they both seem like down-to-earth guys. Yeah. You know, people you could actually have a conversation with and they're not, you know, yeah. condescending and, and all that as we, as we wrap up. It's it's interesting that he's, uh, you know, we were, he's a musician. And a musician first and Joe isn't. Uh, however, he didn't say anything really from the musician's standpoint. It was more of just the way he was talking mm-hmm. about the whole system that gave me the the um the feeling of him being a pro musician yeah. even though he's the president of the label because i was trying to ask him we never we got sidetracked when when i asked him about the 360 deal on the musician side of course i was going to ask him now that you've come over here mm-hmm. what do you view you know what are your views on it and so on but we we just sort of got sidetracked but it wasn't that anything he said specifically as a musician it was just a there was sort of a uh, gestalt about it or whatever yeah. that, you know. It's definitely German interview. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we should thank everybody. Ashley, thank you for being here. Kaylee, thank you for being here. Dr. Esteban, thank you for being here. Gracias. And, of course, my co-host, <laughs> Professor David Kirk Phelps. That is I. Next week, Mike Green, head of digital for ADA. At the end of every okay. Music Biz 101 and More show, we do not say hello. That'd be so silly. At the end of every show, we say, adios! Yeah.
Check.